the best part of your day? Well, that sort of depends, doesn't it? But uh, it might be that first cup of coffee when you're not in a big hurry. It might be that you have time alone with God early in the morning. Or maybe an uninterrupted conversation with your spouse. If you have children, you don't know what that is. It's coming later. Uh, for others, it might be at your work, you have a group think session that's really productive. Or maybe at your work, you have time to achieve a goal. Or, 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 or maybe, you know, you get to read a book, one of your choosing. Your favorite time of the day, the best part of your day will probably be defined by who you are, who you are with, and, and just what sort of activity you'll be doing, if any activity at all. Uh, one of our most cherished gifts when we uh, returned from Australia, uh, was a book called, um, it really was a pictorial documentary, and it was called A Day in the Life of Australia. And as far as we know, that was the first nation that pulled it off. And what it did was on April 23, 1983, uh, the government of Australia contracted with several hundred photographers and spread them out through the entire uh, island nation. And uh, as they spread out, understand that Australia is about 80% of the size of the continental United States, but one-tenth the size in population. And so their job was to go around in different parts of the country and photograph people in their normal everyday lives. Not necessarily the best part of their day, but the normal day that they would, that they would carry on. And no two pictures were alike. No two photographers were allowed to be in the same area. And we got to see people in parts of that country that Barb and I never got a chance to visit in the six years we lived there. And we also saw people uh, do things that we didn't even knew existed. Do you realize that in Australia there are camel herders? And it showed them, ham, uh, you know, what do you call it, herding camels. I don't think I'd like that job. Uh, it also showed uh, going into these uh, opal mines and in Australia, it is so hot where the opal mines are that they dig a tunnel and their houses are 20 feet underground. And, and that's, and it's a very uh, lucrative, uh, mining project that these people do. We also saw the makings of this famous Australian character. It wasn't for real, but close to for real. There are people like Crocodile Dundee. He's not a, a cartoon character. There are people that really walk around in those funny clothes and say, mate, and say, hey, that's not a knife. That's a knife, mate. There are people like that. And the movie, they say, actually came out of these uh, photographs of people who live like that. Well, now I want us to focus a little bit more and look at one day in the life, not of a country, but of a person. And that person is Jesus of Nazareth. I'm calling this a day in the life of Jesus because it is the beginning of his ministry in the region of Galilee and it all takes place around Capernaum, a fishing town that is the home of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. So as we enter this uh, phase and, and close out chapter one of, of the Gospel of Mark, looking at Jesus as the Son of God, I want you to look with how the Son of God spends a day. Now, conventional thinking would be that Capernaum will be Jesus' headquarters. This is the place where he will hang out for the rest of his natural life. 
conventional thinking rarely proves to be conventional activity when it comes to Jesus. And so as we study the Gospel of Mark together, we are doing what I call Christology. What is Christology? Christology is the study of Jesus as the God-man. And because he is God, that means he's not just a man in in a limited form. Yet being the God-man also means that we find him as a person with other people, influencing other people, amazing other people, and most difficult of all, transforming other people. And that's the ministry he wants to do. So I begin in chapter 1, verse 21, and uh, here is how it begins. Chapter 1 of Mark, verse 21, they, meaning the four disciples that live in Capernaum, the two sets of brothers, and Jesus, they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Well, that's a good start. I want you to hear this. Hear it very well. Jesus goes to church. Now, that's just me speaking, okay? I understand, but Jesus goes to church. In fact, when he's in Capernaum on weekdays, he'll preach anywhere to anyone who will listen. He's on the lake. He's in a boat. He's on a hillside. He'll, he'll preach and teach anywhere. But on the Sabbath, Jesus goes to church. And... Uh, nearly every weekend or every Sabbath, Saturday, it is his practice, so he takes his disciples with him. Now, on this Sabbath, understand that a, a traditional part of his synagogue worship service was asking the question, does anybody have something to share? I will never do that here, okay? Because I am totally unprepared for what you might share. This is my time, all right? Uh, but th- this would often happen. The, the scriptures would be read, the psalms would be sung, uh, the, the canting would occur, and then, does anybody have anything to share? And one hand went up, and that was Jesus of Nazareth. He goes up, we do not know what he read, but we know what he taught. Uh, not exactly, but we know the way in which he taught it. You see... People would come up and they'd usually say, this passage uh, means a lot to me and I would just like to quote this rabbi who I have studied under and he's really influential and this is what the passage means. Then that same teacher might also say, however, there's another rabbi, Rabbi you know, Ben Babuzi. And Ben Babuzi says, this is what it means. And they would go back and forth sharing opinions and, and then take it away. Please, take it away and you decide what it means. Then Jesus speaks. And Jesus doesn't teach that way. Jesus probably read the passage. He taught what the passage means. Not from his point of view, but what God intended it to mean. And why not? Friends, he wrote it. So he didn't have to ask questions of what other people think. The Holy Spirit has been moving in the prophets and in Moses to write down what God wants them to say. And so uh, Jesus was involved in that. So he is able to say exactly what it means and not give other people's opinion. And the whole crowd stands amazed 
at his confidence, or it says here, his authority. Jesus teaches with authority, not giving others opinions, but saying what he believes God intended it to mean, and he's right. When Jesus speaks, we need to listen. That's Christology. That means he has something to share that's important, not just from God, but but our lives. Now, it goes on from there because as he speaks the truth, the truth of God, he says it with no apologies, no delusions. But as he speaks it, understand that people get upset. And there's two groups of people that get really upset. And they're the most upset with Jesus. And those two groups are the following. The first are the religious leaders, the proud, the ones who have spent decades studying what these rabbis have said. And uh, they're used to being the ones asked the questions, not being the ones who are taught. Many times within the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is dealing with these religious leaders, religious leaders and also political leaders. And he deals with them in a very specific way. But the second group, and we're going to look at uh, these religious leaders in the future and understand that as a, As I say that, we're looking at religious leaders. Uh, Please realize that um, whether you consider me one or not, uh, every time I'm reading how Jesus speaks to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, he could be talking to me. And the longer you've been a Christian, understand he could really be talking to you. Well... That's the first group. Let's get on to the exciting group, the demon-possessed. We have have many times where we're looking at the self-righteous religious, but now we are focusing on the demon-possessed. Now, I want to say this. Our secular worldview would would have many claiming that the so-called demon-possessed in the Bible are really those who are mentally ill. The secular worldview is wrong. Why do I say that? In the audience... There is a man who is possessed, and let's look at how this happens because it will become very, very clear. I'm in verse 23. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Wow. Please don't do that this morning. Don't catch me off guard like that. But do you see what's going on here? At the heart of the matter is here is a person who's demon-possessed and here is a person who is divine. And the the heart of the matter is who's going to rule in this situation. Now, in the original language, uh, the Greek, and and, uh, Jesus probably, and, and because so many people spoke Greek, Jesus may have actually said these in the Greek words. In the original language, there's just two words that Jesus says, and they're very gritty. And I'm going to try to say them in a gritty way. Thimosete. Did you get it? Probably not. And then he says, Excelthe. You probably get Excelthe. That translates from Greek to, to English. But I'm going, to, I'm going to put it now in English. Now, it has to take up two words in the English, what Jesus just said, in one word each. Thimosity, exalte. It means shut up to the demon. I love that. Now, for those of you who are younger, it doesn't mean like we use that term today. Shut up. 
Okay? Like, oh, really? No, it's, it means shut up! Not another word to come out of you. And then he says, and get out! Shut up and get out! Meaning that that, that demon had to leave this man. Now, uh, one way to discern whether there really is demon possession going on is that the demons always know who Jesus is. They always know his true identity, unlike most of humanity. They always know who Jesus is, and they tremble in his presence. And they know their time is limited. So when Jesus says that, that that demon does not have a chance. So he says, you know, he he mentions his true identity, the Holy One of God. And and understand that when when that demon mentions the Holy One of God, this demon uh, who is in that person uh, knows that he is uh, in a contest where he is both unmatched and outgunned. You, you, you know, um, what's that phrase? You never bring a peace shooter to a gunfight? In the presence of Jesus, he has a peace shooter. And in Jesus himself has all the ammunition he needs to cast this demon out. Now, he mentions his name because there was a tradition at that time where if you speak someone's true identity, it means you have power over the person. That the title that you mention will have, tit- will have power over the person and therefore you will uh, have authority to make that person do what you want. Now, that might work for other people, but it never works for Jesus Christ. He expels the demon and the entire synagogue is stunned. And I can promise you that if that synagogue was looking for a new rabbi, like we're looking for a new pastor, Jesus would have that job hands down. And I want to promise you this. If you ever want to fill a church, just say we have a guest speaker today who has a background in Satan worship. It'll be filled. Really, people will line up because it is so such an exciting story to see the power of God overcome a, someone who has been in a satanic cult. Well, this is how the worship service ends. And again, everybody is just totally amazed at his authority, both by word and by the power he has over, over the evil spirits. So the Sabbath is over. And it says in verse 28, news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Well, you, you think? Um, see, the Sabbath, nobody's ever supposed to travel more than a few thousand steps. And they did that without Fitbits. And so as they were traveling, they knew that the distance from one village to another was this much. And they stayed within the law. Therefore, they were not working on the Sabbath. So even though they had no tweets, no text, no email, somehow just face-to-face people spreading out after the Sabbath, the word gets around. You should have been in church this morning. You really missed it. You want to hear what happened? And that word goes to all the surrounding villages. So you ask, Jesus, how would you spend your day? What's the best part of your day? I went to church. Anything happen? Yeah, quite a bit. So how about the rest of the day? Well, you might say then from 12 to about 5, uh, uh, Jesus finds himself in, in uh, Simon's house. 
Simon and Andrew's house, and as he goes there, his uh, uh, Simon's mother-in-law uh, had a, uh, a fever and was uh, in bed, and it says that Jesus takes her hand and lifts her up, and she, the fever is gone, and she cooks lunch. And so the rest of the afternoon is spent eating and spending time with the disciples. Probably they were asking him questions, but that's the rest of the afternoon with those closer friends in that house. The Sabbath officially ends at sundown. And so we look at the next season of Jesus' day. And and so at about 6 p.m. to 10 p.m., you understand that the entire surrounding villages of Capernaum, the word has gotten out, and they know that uh, a demon was cast out, and the word was taught. It was such confidence that they wanted to be a part of this too. They missed that church. They maybe went to another synagogue, but they missed that church, so they wanted to see for themselves. And, And it says... That uh, after he raised them, then he, you know, as night falls, all these people come to him. And it says in verse 34, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases going after the physical part. And he also drove out uh, uh, many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. It was not yet time for Jesus to let his true identity out. So where that first demon spoke his name in the uh, right there in the synagogue, none of the others were allowed to speak. And when Jesus says, shut up, demons shut up. So the evening is filled with healings and exorcism. Demons being cast out, but not being able to say a word. Jesus will pick the time in which his true identity is revealed. Now, Jesus is the God-man, and as the God-man, like you, like me, he needs sleep. So I would say from about 12 midnight to about 5 p.m., Jesus sleeps. He's a human being. And yet, as dawn arrives on this 24-hour cycle for Jesus, as dawn arrives, if you go to the place where uh, Jesus was sleeping, uh, he's not there. He's nowhere to be found. His bed is empty. What he has done is he has gotten away, and he's gotten away for the purpose, before dawn, of praying. He's doing God's work by talking to God. Now, in this gospel, as we will go through it, uh, understand that Jesus is caught praying only about three times. And each of these times are crises. Now, in the other gospels, you will find that he's giving praise, he's giving thanks to God, he, he gives short prayers to God. But in this gospel, he, it only mentions three crises prayers, and this is the first one. Well, why is this a crisis after such a good day? Why? It would seem like you'd want to get up and just see, okay, what's this day going to be? Maybe something bigger, maybe something better. We don't know. Well, this is what it appears to be happening. Let me go just a little bit further. It says, very early morning, verse 35, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. He knows that there is a crowd behind him, waiting for him, and he is, he is secluded from them. So what is he doing? Well, Christ's prayers for Jesus right now means 
How, Lord, will I do my ministry in the days ahead? I have a big decision. You know, in your life, every two to five years, you have major decisions. Let me mention some of them. Who you will marry, if you will marry. Where will you go to school for your students? Will you go to college? Will you get training in, a, in another type of career? Um, you might be asking, well, after school, what sort of job will I take? Where would I like to live? You know what? I've talked to three people today who say, I'm not sure we're going to be able to live in Evergreen anymore. You say, you got something better? No, it might be a necessity. Oh, okay. Well, let's pray about it and let's see what God wants. Uh, where you live, what are you going to say in tense situations? In tense situations with relationships occur all the time. If you're going to be like Jesus when these big decisions come, watch that Jesus prays in a way that he can listen to God. Not just talk to God. You see, prayer is a conversation. I know how to tell God what I want. I know how to tell God what's on my heart. I, you know, I, I can write them down. I can list them. I can just let them pop to the surface. I can do that. The issue is, is will I let God talk back? Will God have the opportunity to say, I hear that prayer, and here's what I want you to do about it. Prayer is a conversation. God wants to get involved. For me to get involved in prayer, being secluded helps. I don't need to have anybody knocking on my door. I need to be in a way, uh, in a place or in a, in, in a situation where people aren't clamoring for me. Now, understand, I have a lot of free time, all right? This is the best job in the world. And you, you allow me to study the word of God and, and then to teach it and to practice it. So I really appreciate that. But Jesus had to get away because there were so many people waiting for him. He needs a time where he's not hearing what people want from him, but what God wants from him. He needs a time when he's not distracted by people noise, but he's open to God's answers. How this happens in Christology, you know, how there could ever be a broken communication between God the Son and God the Father, that is beyond my pay grade. But Jesus needs to get away to be with the Father. I need God. God noise, divine noise, not always earth noise around me. So now we know that Jesus has gotten away. It's now the equivalent for us Monday morning, tomorrow morning. And Peter has hunt him down. He catches Jesus still alone praying. And he says, everybody's waiting for you. The crowd has come back. And basically what he's saying is, Jesus... It's time to get back to work. Let's open up shop. Let's, you know, let's heal the sick. Uh, let's uh, set the, 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 the demon possessed free. Let's have a good time for the rest of the day. Just continue what you did yesterday and last night. See, the decision Jesus is making is a pretty simple one. Should I shut, should I set up shop in Capernaum? Should I start a, let's call it a holistic medical practice, physical and spiritual healing center right here in Compertium? And if so, I could spend the rest of my days right here. That is what conventional wisdom would say. He can deal with the poor, he can deal with the sick, he can deal with the possessed, but unfortunately he goes and he prays and he gets an unconventional answer from God. Now, 
Secret documents from the Qumran skulls in the Dead Sea have showed us why Jesus really didn't stay in Capernaum. This is a, a record of all the medical mailings I've had this year. Now, it's been a bad year. You know, cancer and a hip replacement, that's going to, you know, that's going to increase this. But from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it said Jesus looked at the paperwork and said, not for me. That wasn't so funny. (laughs) Jesus, by God's plan, had another way to do it. And he explains it right here at the end of the passage. Jesus replied in verse 38, let's go somewhere else to nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. You see, it was God's plan that Jesus not be in one place and people come to him, but it was God's plan that Jesus would make house calls, find a doctor who does that. More than that, it was God's plan, not that he would be so deeply involved in healing and demon and and exercising demons, but God's plan that he would be preaching in other places as the whole gospel begins. Jesus comes preaching in Galilee, sharing the good news of God. His job was to be a herald as God's son of what God had in mind for his people. And he wanted to share that good news. It will set people free. And so he says, that's why I've come. The disciples would eventually be called apostles. They would follow in Jesus' footsteps because apostle means sent one. And apostles, I mean apostles, are sent ones. They're not stay ones. So the idea was that their job was to spread as wide a net as they possibly could, letting everyone or just about everybody know uh, what the good news of God was. The good news of God is that you do not have to be in fear that God is out to punish you and, 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 and complete justice on your sins. That the good news is, is that God's desire is for us to confess our sins and know that we are forgiven. So the relationship between God and us is healed, reconciled. So when Jesus comes to town, Understand that people have to re-examine their habitual beliefs under the truth of God and his word. And Jesus says, that is why I have come, to preach good news. Has Jesus come to you, to your village, to your, to your home? Do you understand that he brings good news, not bad news? Are you excited about it? Are you, have you experienced it? That's what it's all about. So from that time on, we realize that, you know, as the day, as that 24-hour period begins, sometime that morning, Jesus and his four disciples move out. That is exactly what Jesus does to reach the most people possible. And yet to still stay hidden from the leaders of Jerusalem, who when they found out who he claimed to be, would try to kill him. We call that flyover Israel. The idea is that he'd be mainly preaching, but also setting people free from Satan's chains and continue to heal. And he teaches as he heals. Almost, well, many, many of Jesus' healings are also teachings. 
And so sometime afterwards, probably as he's going into these villages, we have this one other great insight into Christology. What is Jesus like? What does it mean to be God in the flesh? And I begin now at uh, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to, to, to him and begged on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cured. It says that Jesus sends him away and says, don't tell anybody. And the man goes away and immediately disobeys and tells everybody he sees. Why not? I'm excited about this. Okay. This is cool. Look, I'm not a leper anymore. To be a leper means that you would be known in your, in, in, in your area as one who had to put holes in his clothes to keep his hair uncombed and messy, uh, to not be able to bathe because you would contaminate the, uh, all the water in the area. And, and you had to wear a veil and you had to always be saying, unclean, unclean, so people would stay away from you. It was a good process because it meant you wouldn't be in contact with other people. And so the health department loved it. But it also was not only something that would kill you, it would isolate you. And this man goes to Jesus, broke the rule there, and he speaks to Jesus, and here is something we have not touched yet. He says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The issue was not, are you powerful enough? Do you have the ability? What he's saying is, Jesus, do you have the heart? And I think that's where some of us are located right now as we think, who is this Jesus? Tell me about Christology. Well, as the Son of God, he has all the power of God to overcome anything that the secular world can't even touch. It's all there in him. But that's not the issue. The issue is, Jesus, if you are willing, in other words, do you care about my condition? Do you love me? All the power in the world mixed with all the love in the world, and you've got something that is unstoppable. And this is where this first chapter ends. Jesus says, I care. I'm willing. Be clean. Jesus is not supposed to just touch your mind, but enter your soul. So you understand that when you first think about God, yes, you may be thinking about your obedience and disobedience and all these things in terms of your moral understanding, but first and foremost, you would understand God loves you. And he proved it in Jesus. That's Christology. God's love demonstrated in the flesh. That's Christology. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loves you. And so Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. That's a day in the life of Jesus. Parents, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but uh, <clears throat> your children ever come home and after school and you know you, you sit them down and say, so, um, how'd your day go? 
And your kids will look at you and say, good, can I have a bowl of cereal? And that's true. They're hungry. They want to eat. So you give them cereal and they don't want to talk about the day the rest of the day. Jesus, after that day, say, Jesus, how'd your day go? Oh, man. You won't believe it. Unless you were there. In 24 hours, power over the evil one, power over illness and infirmities, and power to present the truth of who God really is. What a day! What a day! Just 24 hours! And more than that, I understand my mission and I have spent a whole day on mission. And I will spend the rest of my life on mission until my crucifixion. That is why I am here. Let's pray. Lord, in these first few chapters of Mark, I just want to go back to that great song. I want to know you. I want to see your face. I want to know you more. And in knowing you, I realize I will be transformed. When I know you, I know you will help me know me as I've never known myself before. In proper Christology, when I know what you are like, I will understand my anthropology and what I'm like as a human being and my personal psychology, those things that are motivating me and those things that are ruining me and destroying me. I will be aware of all of those. All because you came to us in the flesh and gave up that body on your cross. Father, we give you thanks. We praise you. Thank you for Jesus. Even just glimpsing at how we spent 24 hours. Thank you for Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.